Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now, in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. We have a congregation here of open-hearted people. We help people. We're here to help people. And to have something like this happen destroys my heart. And when I say destroys, it destroys it because there is evil in this world. Six seconds. Six seconds. I'd actually rather be talking about eight seconds. The documentary, the movie from the 90s about Lane Frost. That was a sad story too, but much better one ultimately. We're talking about six seconds. That was the time from the first shot being fired. At the West Freeway Church of Christ in Texas yesterday. And the final shot. Six seconds. Three people dead. Now I hope you had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. Obviously, evil is alive and well. And there's an effort to try to keep you from having a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. We are here on the back of the eighth anti-Semitic attack in New York alone during the month of December, Saturday. And on back of yet another attack on Christians and the church. And so the question becomes, why? None of this is new. Anti-Semitism, that's not new. Attacks against Christianity, that's not new. Machetes aren't new. Guns aren't new. Mental health issues aren't new. So why do we have the escalation of violence? What's really going on here? Now, I am Brian Mudd. I host the Morning Rush WJNO in West Palm Beach. The Brian Mudd Show WIOD in Miami. It is always in honor and a pleasure being here with you, guest hosting for the great one, Mark Levin. And uh, as I broadcast, I do uh, broadcast from West Palm Beach, mere miles away from the president's new primary residence when he's not at 1600 Pennsylvania, as he's done what many very wise New Yorkers have done and continue to do, and that is to flee the disaster that is New York and come to our wonderful Florida. And the only thing that we ask as you flee uh, high-tax states and come here to Florida is that you vote for politicians like President Trump, those that have created the wonderful economy we have in Florida, the lack of income tax and all the goodness that is here. So it's the, the one requirement. We are going to get into the impeachment hoax. I got the latest on it. Uh, we're going to talk about the premise of the impeachment hoax. There a whole lot on that uh, later on in the show. But I did want to start here because... There are so many teachable moments in these two most recent attacks. Teachable moments that get into issues that have nothing to do with the premise of these problems. Now, I just posed the questions. 
Why? You'll always hear me talk about the premise. We've got to establish the premise of any particular situation. And I talk about there being two sides to stories and one side of facts. We're all entitled to our opinions. There are only one set of facts, and we've got to get those straight. And we've got to make sure we're operating on a sound premise. And once we are, boom, go away with whatever your particular opinion is. This is the United States of America. You're free to do so. The problem is we reject the premise so often. A false one is embraced by your godless souls and slanderous news media. And it's advanced often by an education establishment that's more interested in their own political agenda than they are the truth. And it, the end result might be something like what we saw during a Hanukkah celebration Saturday night in New York. Or at a church service after Christmas in Texas. It's not the first time I've mentioned this, even on this show. But it's worth repeating right now. As we look for answers, I never want to, to just embrace that some, naturally something is, is totally different. Without understanding why it's different. So again, if anti-Semitism isn't new, if attacks against Christianity, not new, if guns aren't new, if mental health issues aren't new, if machetes even are new, why is it that we are seeing these problems? Why is it that we have the escalation of these issues? Now, one of the greatest pieces of research I've ever seen that deals with a lot of the issues we discuss pertaining to increase in violence and What's wrong on mental health issues? It actually came from a Harvard study, and it was just last year. It was a September story from last year that I brought you uh, that I called uh, Faith Improves Mental Health Outcomes. And it's pretty straightforward. Harvard took a look at mental health issues because it is true that we have seen a dramatic escalation in mental health issues. And as we take a look at mental health issues in the escalation, what is the time period? Well, in their study, what we've seen is that starting with the 80s, we saw a dramatic and steady rise in people with reported mental health issues. And as we saw a rise in people with mental health issues, including at younger ages, we are also seeing a corresponding increase in violence. The most notable first indication that there was a bigger shoe that was getting ready to drop was Columbine in 99. Now, when we take a look at, at what happened there, now let's take a look at some of the specific attacks and events that have happened. At that point and since, there's something else we saw. Corresponding decline in those who believed in God. And you can walk it right back to the 1980s. You can nearly draw a straight line in this Harvard research that showed an increase in mental health issues with the corresponding decline in those who said they believe in God. Coincidence? Maybe, but then maybe not. Because, once again, in this Harvard study, what was fascinating is that we see that those who believed in God, believed in something greater than themselves, guess what? 
by the age of 20, those raised with a religious affiliation in this country average being 18% happier, 30% more likely to help others, and 33% less likely to engage in substance abuse. What's more, and again, this is a Harvard study, is that those who fared best were those who pray daily. In other words, having faith and being raised on it in any capacity provides significant benefit. But the closer one is to their faith, the more likely they are to be happier, to be willing to help others, not to engage in substance abuse, and obviously not to engage in violence. Okay, so now we've got two straight lines that can connect these dots. But what's one other thing that took place starting in the 1980s? Well, when you take a look at the effort to remove any mention of God and faith from our education establishment, it started in the 1960s. But the Department of Education, they finished the job. Now, just coincidentally, the Department of Education was created when? In 1979. When did they actually go in force? 1980. Now, something else that's happened over that same period of time, United States of America was second in average education outcomes, second only to Australia in 1980. At the time of the creation of the Department of Education, all we've ever done since is see a decline in education outcomes. Thank you, Department of Education. Well, that's been real worthwhile. But it also, the Department of Education, saw to it that we did remove the reference of God and faith, and any element of morality from our schools. So now you have three corresponding pieces of really significant information, a timeline that all connects. And then you take a look at the generation that's being raised. So Columbine, that attack, first kids being raised under this new godless system created by our Department of Education. Continue to take a look at the escalation of violence, even to these two attacks over the weekend. It appears, as of now, mental health issues are evident in both of the attackers, in New York and in Texas. The ages, 37 and 43. Now, again, what your news media is going to do is throw, well, mental health issues. We need more mental health you know, help. But why do we have the mental health problems? Once again, taking a look at the information I just brought you, it's because we have been raising and bringing up whole generation and now generations of people without any moral compass, without any belief in something greater than themselves, without a dynamic that, according to Harvard research, proves that people are significantly more happy, significantly more likely to help others, and significantly less likely to engage in substance abuse and, of course, violence. But we're not going to pay any attention to that research. As I've discussed, even Harvard seemingly buried their own research here because it didn't fit their narrative. Because what's the better narrative? Well, the better narrative, if you're a leftist, is gun control, right? Gun control, because, by God, if we only control those guns... And these people, I mean, they're, they're going to be great. No problems here. Uh, right. So about that gun control thing. Going to get into that coming up next. 
I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mark Levin. As we celebrate the Christmas and holiday season, we often pause to consider our many blessings. Hillsdale College thanks you for loyalty as it celebrates 175 years of blessings. Now, since 1844, Hillsdale has held fast to its mission to provide the kind of education essential to preserving free government. And for decades, the college has extended its educational mission on behalf of Liberty through a variety of outreach programs. Perhaps you receive in Primus for free every month or have taken one of Hillsdale's excellent free online courses, or have attended one of Hillsdale's free regional events. You know of Hillsdale's refusal to take even one penny of government money. Now, this independence allows the college to focus on promoting its core principles, learning, character, faith, and freedom without government interference. So during this season of blessings, Hillsdale thanks you for your partnership in extending its mission to the country. Merry Christmas from Hillsdale College, and to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. This is uh, intolerance meets ignorance meets illegality. Uh, This is an intolerant time in this country. We see anger. We see hatred exploding. Yeah, but why Cuomo? Why? Why Cuomo? Why do we have all this exploding intolerance? Why do we have all this hatred? Now, I know what the quick reaction of leftists is. I mean, heck, de Blasio himself pointed to Washington, but not just Washington, to the White House. Now, that's cute, especially as it pertains to anti-Semitism, given everything that Trump has done to connect with Israel, to connect with Jewish people to help provide support to the faith. Never mind the leftists that seemingly ignore the fact that, well, his uh, daughter and son-in-law happen to be Jewish. Oh, by the way, and can be in truth. So the why, Cuomo, again, as we try to establish the premise as to why we have an escalation, an intolerance, an increase a dramatic increase in anti-Semitic attacks and attacks against Christianity, a dramatic increase in mass shootings even. If you missed the first segment, connected several dots for you. The dots happen to be these, the Reader's Digest version, if you're just joining us. We have research from Harvard from last year that shows that those who are raised with faith those who uh, have God in their lives in some capacity are far more likely to be happy, far more likely to help others, and far less likely to engage in substance abuse and subsequent violence. And that's just by the age of 20, by the way. We're talking about the difference it has at a very early age in adulthood. Now, we also have corresponding evidence that shows a dramatic rise in mental health issues, starting with young people, going back to the 1980s and continuing to rise to this day. At the same time that you had the Department of Education come into play in 1980, doing its level best to ensure that God was removed from our education establishment. All mere coincidences, right, Cuomo? As we look for the real reason, the premise behind this. I was reminded, actually, of what we are 
inclined to do. We treat symptoms. That's what the society, even aside from politics, the, the society, society is often geared towards treating symptoms rather than actually seeking cures. An example that, uh, that came to mind during the break, my wife, uh, Ashley, for years, I won't say how many, but for years, her entire life, as a matter of fact, until about a decade ago, she had been misdiagnosed. She had all kinds of digestive issues and various different issues that came off of those digestive issues. She was on multiple prescriptions. The symptoms were being treated. What hadn't been diagnosed is that she had celiac disease. So she didn't know that she couldn't have gluten. So rather than having all of these prescriptions to try to help her simply tolerate something that was poisoning her without her knowledge, simply understanding that, hey, I, I can't have gluten, changed her life inside of a couple of days. And guess what? She got off the prescriptions. That's what happens when you have real solutions. So rather than the knee-jerk reaction towards gun control and the knee-jerk reaction towards simply throwing more money at mental health issues, whatever that means to somebody in particular, how about actually producing a society with fewer people with mental health problems in the first place. Wouldn't that serve people well? Wouldn't that serve our society better? Wouldn't that produce a better quality of outcome in our schools? Less violence? Maybe less bullying? See, again, none of this stuff is new. Guns aren't new. Anti-Semitism isn't new. Violence against Christians, not new. But the escalation of violence, Cuomo, you're right. That is exploding. But do you care to get to the truth? Or do you just simply want to deal with the symptoms? Because that for you might be good politics. Because that for you might mean gun control. Which again, still doesn't help with the machete situation. But about that gun control. It's a funny thing. And I have a story about Mexico. story about Mexico that is actually going to tie directly in to the attacks that we're talking about. It's about how gun control in Mexico has led to record murders. That's right, gun control in Mexico has led to record murders. And it continues to make California and other states that are making their laws stronger on gun control worse and less safe every day. Talk about that coming back back next. Get your calls as well. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. You hear me talk about Hillsdale College a lot, about its rigorous classical liberal arts curriculum, about its exceptionally bright and patriotic students. 175 years ago, Hillsdale College was founded with a mission defined by four enduring purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom. While many institutions have lost their way, Hillsdale College maintains an unwavering commitment to learning, character, faith, and freedom. I've also talked about the great Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. He's one of the finest Americans I've ever known. And he explains that these four purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, remain inseparable in the activity of education at Hillsdale College. He says, learning is difficult and takes more than talent. It takes hard work, which requires character. Freedom is essential for learning, but it is fragile and constantly under threat, so its principles must be studied by all for the sake of its defense. At Hillsdale, faith and learning are integrated toward God because he is the first authority. 
Folks, if you've ever wondered why I love Hillsdale College, now you know. Visit hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu for more information. Hillsdale College, pursuing truth and defending liberty since 1844. Remember, that's hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. Ever notice how you come across somebody once in a while that you shouldn't have messed with? That's Mark and You can call him at 877-381-3811. We have seen uh, increased uh, anti-Semitism around the world. Um, We've all observed Christians under threat in the Middle East uh, and other parts of the world as well. President Trump has made a true pillar of America's foreign policy, religious freedom, the right of each of us to practice our faith in the way that we desire to do so. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and yes, uh, accurate in all those points. But again, the question still remains why. And it is Brian Mudden for the great one, Mark Levin. Hope you had a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah. And uh, unfortunately, we are discussing the attacks uh, that, it, the, that occurred Saturday in New York, Sunday morning, Texas. And talking about the premise of why we're seeing an escalation in violence. And so I've brought you information and research that segs together from the Department of Education, removing God and any reference of of faith from our schools, to an increase in mental health illness in this country, to an increase in violence. All while we have recent research from Harvard from September of last year that demonstrates that having a belief in God and being raised with faith leads to a much greater likelihood of one being happier, more likely to help others, far less likely to engage in substance abuse, and subsequently violence. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you would think that's valuable information. Now, as I'll often uh, discuss, the most pervasive form of bias in news media is omission. It's omitting information. And even Harvard themselves with this study, with this really powerful information, might make a difference in really getting to some solutions, resulting perhaps in some policy changes starting in our schools. Rather than that information being disseminated, discussed, and uh, seriously debated uh, for, for changes, it simply was buried. Buried by them, buried by news media. I just found it digging up research by chance. I was glad I did. But if we want to get to the premise, we should probably take a look at all these factors because that is what's changed in our society. Again, anti-Semitism, not new. Attacks against Christianity, not new. Machetes, not new. Guns, not new. And when we take a a look at mental health issues... Mental health problems are not new either, just an increase in them. And it appears right now that the attackers in both instances over the weekend had mental health issues. So why? Is it just a coincidence that we have different versions of a similar thing over and over and over again in this country? Or is there something to all of this information? I'm going to delve into that. I've also got some really compelling research about how gun control leads to less safety. From Mexico to California to wherever you happen to be right now, 
talk about that coming up. Uh, but first, let's go to Gary in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, listening on WABC. Gary, welcome to the show. Go. All right. Thank you for surrounding me with the welcome wagon. And there's nothing wrong with this country that 100 million Americans singing onward Christian soldiers couldn't solve. You know, at one time, uh, American men would go to church on Sundays, and that would be the thing. Today on Sundays, American men watch football. You know, you watch three straight football games, and your brain has to start to vegetate. And there are a lot of crazy people. I'm in the tri-state area here. They just release them. The facts, the cold facts are there are more people in this country. You have like 350 million people in the country. And the more people you have, you, unfortunately, you're going to have more lunatics running around. But also, unfortunately, we don't deal with them. But we would deal with them correctly. We would treat them. We would take them out of the, the, out of the communities and get them the treatment they need. And the ones who could come back and come back. And the ones who really need more treatment would stay in treatment. Instead, they release them. They have them out in the streets harassing people. It's just, it's crazy. On January 1st, in New York State, they passed a law that folks are not going to have bail anymore when people get arrested. Yep. They're going to just release them. To me, I've always said this for a year, Guy, that this was their, the heart, I'm talking about the hard left, this was their army in the street to destroy America. They're enjoying it. They love it when your neighborhoods are destroyed. There's no other. To me, I always said, listen, I don't care the reason why they're doing it. I see that they're doing it, and I see the effect, and I want it to be stopped. I'm not going to start trying to rationalize with people who are crazy and <laughs> nuts, and they yeah. turn stuff on there. Yeah, Look at well that. Said. Look at that poor girl a few weeks ago up in Morningside Drive, that college student, that beautiful girl who was murdered, right? These individuals. Yeah, you're spot on, Gary. And, you know, something you cannot do is try to rationalize the inherently irrational. Speaking of violent related situations, uh, an example I'll use, because inevitably, if you have a hypothetical situation that lines up somewhat with this example, you have a husband with a family, and he kills his wife, but he also kills his kids. Inevitably, you'll come across somebody who will say, he killed his wife, but how could he kill his kids? As though somehow or another it's rational that he offed his wife. But the kids, I mean, we got to draw the line somewhere, right? And that, that you know, kind of speaks to the greater issue here. Uh, again, we got a false premise in a lot of aspects in life. And one of the important aspects of this conversation isn't simply that, you know, if you, you, you give your life to God, you, you, you believe it's going to solve everything for everybody. I, I'm not an ideologue, uh, and, and I'm not an idealist. I go where the information takes me. Man, two sides of stories, one side of facts. This is empirical research, and as I connect the dots between all the research and the information that's available, it tells a story. And as I've been more than happy to illustrate over the course of time, you could be an atheist, and you benefit from the tenets of those around you having faith. Why? Because people are more likely to do good things. <laughs> so it leads to a better society. And that's always been one of my greatest frustrations with atheists. It's the United States of America. You're free. If you don't want to believe in anything, you have a right not to. But why you would go out of your way to try to take something that is instilling positive values and good outcomes in other people's lives just because you have your own situation you're dealing with, that to me is, is a whole other issue uh, that should be dealt with. Let's go to uh, Jeff in Dallas. Jeff. Go. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for taking my call. You know, I agree with everything that you're saying, but there's another factor that I don't think we're looking at, and that is the destruction of the family. If you go back to 1969 when 
no-fault divorce came into place, divorce on demand, divorce for any reason, for no reason, you started destroying families. We do not acknowledge what's taking place in the lives of our children and of our grandchildren when the two people that they love and respect the most all of a sudden say, we're not going to stick together for you. This is a, a bit, I mean, every study has shown that there is a direct correlation between divorce and what happens in society, whether it be children dropping out of school, committing crimes, um, whether it's unwed pregnancies, whatever it is, every single social malady is worse. And why isn't that the case? I mean, that, that, that should be the case. Even in the Old Testament, it talks about, you know, divorce as violence. They're seeing violence between their parents with divorce, and they're just replicating what they're seeing. We have got to get back to the issue and the necessity of family integrity and family structure, um, in addition to everything else. But we've got to talk about family. And if yeah, we're not talking it's... about family, we're losing it. Now, you're absolutely right. And nowhere is it more evident what you're talking about, the breaking down of the family unit and some of the negative outcomes than in uh, black families specifically. You can draw straight lines if you go into that research behind the divorce rate, single families, single mothers, and outcomes there uh, in, in terms of poverty and everything else. Uh, so, yes, uh, very good point. Let's go to Joey in Manhattan. Joey, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I just wanted to talk about the actual research you were bringing up from the, the Harvard research. Yes. Um, and and the, I guess I just find it weird because you're talking about a correlation, and I feel like you're trying to show a causation. The research... Uh, talks very much about religion and the effects it has on people's happiness and the effect that that has on their their life. And uh, as a religious person, I happen to agree very much that it does have a very benefit uh, benefit effect. Um, but from there, you kind of keep like insinuating that it's this lack of happiness that's you know why we're seeing this uptick in mental illness. But I think it's a very big jump. I mean, like you, people who are bipolar or schizophrenic who might be religious people that have an actual disease that has nothing to do with their religion or their happiness. Sure. So I just think that there's, you know, in your argument, there's a little bit of like a, um, like a, um, a jump there, an intellectual jump. that doesn't I, I, Well, it, I understand where you're coming from, Joey, and I appreciate the opportunity to further illustrate the point. If I were to just take one piece of information and go from point A to, to Z. I would think that y y your point is 100% on the money, and I would not be doing my job. But it's not. That's where I go a step further, because I'm trying to get to the premise. I'm not trying to find information that helps me illustrate a particular point. That's what a, a lot of hacks out there do, and many of your folks in, in the Godless Souls and Slenders news media. When I take that information and... I look at what we've seen with the outcomes. When we have this thing, Harper says, okay, so you're far likely to be happier. You're far more likely to help others. You're far less likely to engage in substance abuse. You're far less likely to engage in violence if you believe in God, whatever your idea of God happens to be. And then I take a look, okay, well, let, where I next tracked my research happened to be those who believe in some kind of God, some kind of faith. We have research from the Pew Research Center and from Gallup to go back decades on this stuff. And you can take a look, and there's about a 20% increase in those who believe in nothing uh, over where we were about the time the Department of Education ensured that God was removed from our schools. Then we also see a negative uh, 
outcome in the classroom. We see over that same period of time, you have not only an increase in mental health issues, but you also have a decrease in outcomes in the classroom. You've got all these different data points that end up ultimately pointing in the exact same direction. At some point, you have to sit there and go, how much of this is a coincidence? Now, is it a panacea? Absolutely not. Again, we have had violence. We have had people uh, that have acted out, that have killed others, that have engaged in mass attacks. But it used to be the rarity. Now it's becoming more commonplace. Why is it, once again, that with mental health issues not being new, with guns not being new, with machetes not being I mean, whatever it is, none of this is new. Not, but the escalation and the way that people act out, that is. And perhaps the lack of a moral compass is a big part of the reason. And perhaps the effort to remove God in any type of moral compass from anybody as early as possible in this country, maybe that has something to do with it. Because when you take a look at all these different things, you'd have to really try hard to try to explain away all of these quote-unquote coincidences that correspond with each other over the exact same timeline. That's how you get to the premise. And again, if we want real solutions, we should deal with this. And simply speaking about the information regarding a happier society, a society that's more likely to help others and more likely uh, to not engage in violence, can we not all agree that that's a good thing? I, I would certainly hope so. I would certainly hope so. But for those who are pushing a political agenda, the answer is what? Well, it's more gun control. It's just uh, you know treat treat people that already have mental health issues better somehow, or just make the outreach better, as though that is really dealing with the problem. All you're doing treating the symptoms. Continue the conversation coming up next. I'm Brian Mud in for the great one. Mud Lovin. As we celebrate the Christmas and holiday season, we often pause to consider our many blessings. Hillsdale College thanks you for loyalty as it celebrates 175 years of blessings. Now, since 1844, Hillsdale has held fast to its mission to provide the kind of education essential to preserving free government. And for decades, the college has extended its educational mission on behalf of Liberty through a variety of outreach programs. Perhaps you receive in Primus for free every month or have taken one of Hillsdale's excellent free online courses, or have attended one of Hillsdale's free regional events. You know of Hillsdale's refusal to take even one penny of government money. Now, this independence allows the college to focus on promoting its core principles, learning, character, faith, and freedom without government interference. So during this season of blessings, Hillsdale thanks you for your partnership in extending its mission to the country. Merry Christmas from Hillsdale College, and to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Can we do more in the, the area of mental health and trying to address people that have problems and try to identify them before they do this? Yes, I, I think that's true. But is it possible to ever prevent every possible incidence? I don't think anybody could do that. That is Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson. And often what you hear is what was just expressed there. The best we can do is try to manage the problems we've already got. Okay, fine. Manage the problems we've already got. 
But how about actually trying to reduce the problems in the first place? That's where this conversation needs to be taking place. And again, we do have a roadmap. Now, the inconvenient truth is the roadmap, based upon re- aggregated research, would seem to suggest that, hey, uh, you know, if, if we have a belief in God, if we have a belief in something greater than ourselves, we have better outcomes. I mean, craziness, right? And yet, what do we do in this country? We continue to allow leftists, we continue to allow our godless souls and slanderous news media, we continue to allow our education establishment to go the other way. I mean, to the point where many people are afraid to express their faith in public in any way. By the way, my uh, Twitter handle, at Brian Mudd Radio, you may follow me there. You'll actually see a message uh, that is somewhat related uh, when, uh, when you look me up in uh, follow me on Twitter. Now let's go to uh, Dasha in Pennsylvania. Dasha, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. It's, uh, no, I'm, I'm very interested to hear from you. So you got a message from Russia. So I immigrated here from Russia, from communist socialist. Let's, let's put it this way. USSR is United Socialist Soviet Republic. So it's socialist. Let's just knock that out. Um, which religion is, was not allowed. Your religion was communism. And um, without God... People, uh, when we immigrated here, actually, we came here under Jewish visa, even though I'm Catholic. I'm a practicing Catholic, and um, believe it or not, I actually practice Jewish, um, Jewish practices as well, because it's the Old Testament. But without religion, you create this new, you, you create soullessness. That's why people do not have respect for one another. That's why people cannot support one another. That's why they can't love one another, because when you have God, God equals love. You just nailed on something, and it's an instructive point in many respects. It is an inherently human condition to desire something greater. We all, at our best, and sometimes at our worst, want to be part of something greater, an understanding of something that's bigger. And when you remove an element of faith, of God, when there is nothing that is a part of that moral compass, it's natural to replace it with other things, to replace it with politics, to replace it with climate change, whatever it is, but things that are based on a false premise. And that easily can get you off the rails and can be a contributing factor. We're going to talk about gun control and how it's actually leading to more violence. I'm Brian Mudd, and for The Great One, Mark Levin. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. 
now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. An individual's using a 12-gauge short-barrel shotgun with double-lock buck in it, which is what he had in it, then, you know, it could have been a whole lot worse. Jack Wilson, the man who, less than six seconds after a first shot was fired in the Texas church, fired the last shot, one shot from about 50 feet away, that ended up taking down the attacker. Someone who is an American hero, and like any hero, says that he's no hero. And that also illustrates a really good point. It could have been a whole lot worse. Let's say that church had been a gun-free zone. Let's say that Jack hadn't been there and ready. We don't know how that story ends. But as Jack put it, could have been a whole lot worse. Any doubt that if inside of four seconds, you already had two people who died, the situation was going to be a lot worse? There is a moral to this particular story. And I'm Brian Mudd. And for the great one, Mark Levin, host the Morning Rush WJNO in West Palm Beach, the Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. And it is always an honor and a pleasure to be guest hosting for the great one, Mark Levin. And I love being with you. You're an absolutely amazing audience. You hear me talk about the premise, there being two sides to stories and one side to facts, the most pervasive form of bias in news media being omission. And so with all that in mind, I talked a lot about mental health issues in the first hour and often in trying to treat symptoms rather than reduce mental health problems in the first place. We winded into the gun control argument. I was thinking about this situation, the Texas church yesterday. I was thinking about what might have happened if we had gun free zones. And I was thinking about an attack that uh, happened earlier this month. Naval Air Station Pensacola, probably heard about it. So we had, as part of the Saudi training program, a Saudi terrorist participating with our Navy training that ended up concocting a plot and carrying out an Islamic terror attack at Naval Air Station Pensacola. Now, one of the things that you might not have heard, if you really were paying close attention to the story, you might have. But you would have had to have looked for it because certainly your news media didn't go out of its way to bring you this information. You know the one thing above all else that was requested by those serving a naval air station Pensacola was after that attack? To be armed. Now at first you might be thinking, what are you talking about? These are professionally trained military heroes. I mean, these are the folks who protect us from the bad guys. They're, of course they're going to be. No. It's a gun-free zone. Gun-free zone at Naval Air Station Pensacola and military bases all across our country. They just wanted the ability to defend themselves because maybe that story would have been different. And maybe we wouldn't have lost so many American heroes that day had somebody simply been able to eliminate the threat the way that, say, Jack Wilson did. But even that PC culture that has permeated our military Guns. If only we have a gun-free zone, then that works. Uh Uh-huh. 
So I'm going to bring up a piece of research that at first might not make sense in the context of this conversation, but I will quickly bring it back around. It's a story about Mexico. Certainly that's been a big part of this conversation, an escalation in violence with drugs, with many different things that have been issues throughout the course of 2019. Mexican gun control, that's something you never hear really discussed, right? When was the last time you heard Mexican gun control policy being discussed? Well, there's a reason for it. See, Mexican gun control has led to record murders in Mexico. So there is quite literally only one gun store in Mexico. It's an army-operated store in Mexico City that doesn't sell any other caliber other than a twenty-two. All right, so you got it? One gun store in all of Mexico. And all they sell is 22s. Are you going, hold on. You got all this violence all the time. And, I mean, you know, high caliber and, and even automatic weapons. Only 22. Yeah, that's right. Now, there's a reason there's only this one gun store in Mexico that happens to be in Mexico City. It's because the Mexican government makes it nearly impossible to own firearms legally in the country. The paperwork, it's extensive. The process, it takes months to complete, and there's no guarantee of an outcome. And even if approved, well, you've got to travel to Mexico City to purchase a 22. That, by the way, is priced in a way that's also cost prohibitive for most Mexican families. And so the net result is that Only 1% of Mexicans legally possess a firearm. Okay, 1%. And again, all they legally possess is the 22. Now, if fewer legally owned guns equaled less violence in safer communities, Mexico would be one of the safest countries in the world. It'd be exponentially safer than the United States, right? Especially when the only guns are lower caliber guns. Now, why is it you never hear any of this being discussed in our godless, soulless, and slanderous news media? Why is it that you never hear this discussed by leftists? In the United States, just over 30% of adults legally own a firearm. That's literally 30 times the ownership rate in Mexico. And 84% of the guns legally purchased are a higher caliber than a 22. So what's the difference in murder rate? A record average of 90 murders per day have occurred in Mexico this year. What's the average in the United States where our population much higher? 46 murders per day. Okay. The Mexican population is 130 million. The U.S. population, 328 million. So to put it another way, you're greater than 500% more likely to be murdered in Mexico than in the United States where the legal gun ownership rate is 30 times higher with much higher caliber guns. So for everyone who espouses the narrative that guns rather than people are the problem, explain this one. Now, the escalation of violence in Mexico has reached crisis level. Not only has the murder rate reached record levels, cartels recently outgunned even the government forces, right? Done things like recover El Chapo's son. 
later executing a police officer responsible for the arrest. You have so many, even law enforcement and government officials that are intimidated to stand in the way of these cartels. We just saw, once our FBI got involved with the attack of the Utah family, that it was a government official that was involved, allegedly, in that attack. Because, again, they're defenseless against these cartels. So, where is the truth? Guns equal more violence, right? More deaths. Now, when you take a look at the situation in Mexico, and you take a look at the facts in this country, even with the escalation of violence that we're dealing with, shouldn't we have a conversation about gun control and what has been done when it's been carried out to extremes? In North America, no less. And that takes me to this one. 2019's record mass killings illustrate gun control failures. Generally speaking, it just doesn't work. And I'm talking about gun control. Mexico, pretty broad example, right? But it's not just Mexico. You know, we, we can make this as complicated of a conversation as we want to. And you have a bunch of people who try. Most often in the name of political and emotional interest over any type of pragmatism and reality. But it shouldn't be that way. It doesn't need to be complicated. Remember, automatic, not semi-automatic, automatic guns were illegal in the United States until the 1980s. So if that were the case, why is it that we didn't have much bigger problems back then? Now, again, you got to take everything in context. The information I shared with you the first hour of the show, the rise in mental health issues, and the connection between a lack of belief and an escalation in mental health issues and violence. And you can take a look at this information on gun control. It's, you know, first question I always have for people would just say, gun control, gun control. Okay, if you have somebody who's bent on killing people and you control guns, you don't have a problem anymore? I mean, I guess people find alternate options like the machete, for example, New York this weekend. But whatever it happens to be, we're still not dealing with the issues. So a bit more about gun control. Let's take a look at what's been happening in the United States. We've progressively seen the progressives do what? Pass stricter and stricter gun control. So... I pointed out that Mexico's gun laws are among the most restrictive in the world. The process to legally possess, it takes months. Only 1% of Mexicans legally own a gun, and all they own is a 22. And yet tens of thousands are murdered annually by illegally owned firearms. And honest Mexicans are rendered essentially defenseless. When you take a look at the gun control, the way it's playing out in the United States, especially in 2019, we see very similar themes. And I'm going to bring you information that hits home next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. 
So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I don't consider myself a hero at all. Did what I was trained to do. Jack Wilson, spoken like a hero. Man who put an end to the threat in the Texas church yesterday. And he was able to put an end to that threat because he had his weapon on him. And he was trained. And he was ready. And when we talk about guns and gun control and the arguments that lead to so many of the problems that we can illustrate with numerous points in our society that don't address why somebody would pick up a gun to try to cause harm to others in the first place, rather than dealing with that premise, just simply dealing with the inanimate object that can't do anything unless somebody operates it. One of the things that we walk right past, results. We have evidence of what gun control in North America does at a very extreme level. You want to see it? Mexico. Catch you up to speed if you're just joining us. The information I uh, shared in the uh, first segment of this hour. There's but one gun store in Mexico. Mexican government has all kinds of red tape. Makes it very difficult for anybody to be able to legally obtain one or to even afford one. And if you're able to possess legally, you're only able to purchase a 22. And so only 1% of Mexicans legally own a gun. And yet tens of thousands are being murdered by those using guns illegally in Mexico. So what gives? Well, it's not just Mexico. People will say, yeah, but this and that and whatever. It's a different version of a similar thing right here at home in the United States. Now, a lot of people will point to cities like Chicago, and there are cases to be made. But I want to bring new information, information that I just compiled this weekend. A record 41 mass killings have occurred in the United States in 2019, resulting in the third highest number of victims, 211. Now, when you talk about mass killings, they're defined as the murder of four or more people in a single attack. Now, according to the Giffords Law Center, now, again, the Giffords Law Center, these are big gun control advocates. According to them, California currently has the strongest gun control laws in the country. Okay, so, well, guess which state leads the country in mass deaths, mass killings via gun? Yep, it's Cali. And it's not just because California is the largest state. I always take things into account on a relative basis. So, California. They have 12% of the U.S. population. But guess what? 
20% of the mass shootings in the country while having the strictest gun laws in the country. So what does that tell you? If more gun control, stricter gun laws, equaled safer communities, why is it not working in California? Why is it going the other way? If simply regulating guns fixed problems, Mexico would be one of the safest places on the planet. And California would be the safest state in this country. But instead, we're looking at the literal opposite. So maybe one day, we'll actually take a look at what's wrong with people who are killing others with guns rather than the guns they use to kill people. And if we do, we're bound to find solutions. And if all we do is more of the same, what are we going to get? Now, again, for most people who get it, this is common sense. The information is new to you regardless, but it makes sense. It's logical. Again, the gun's not new. People acting out not new. The escalation in violence, it is. And I've illustrated the connection between the lack of faith, the lack of a belief in God, the education establishment eliminating God from our schools, increase in mental health illness reported in this country, and all kinds of neg- other negative outcomes, including a decline in overall education outcomes. So what is it going to take before we're willing to have an honest conversation with factual information? When is it that we're willing to discuss the actual premise of what's going on here? And if you're trying to have this conversation with a leftist, with somebody who's making an emotional argument, they're simply afraid of a gun. Well, the first thing is, if someone's afraid of a gun, I don't want them handling it. But why is it that Jack Wilson, within six seconds, with one shot from about 50 feet away, was able to eliminate the threat in that Texas church? It's because he had his weapon, and he knew what he was doing with it. Guns often save lives. Talk about that. Coming up next, along with some of your calls, this is Brian Mudd filling in for the great one, Mark Levin. In a world of pathetic liberal potholes, he's a truck full of hot constitutional asphalt. Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. We can't prevent every incident, we can't prevent mental illness from from occurring, and we can't prevent every crazy person from pulling a gun, but we can be prepared like this church was. Bingo, we can be prepared like this church was. Gun-free zones, well, that uh, works how exactly? Well, it it certainly wouldn't have worked in this particular situation. Thank God, quite literally, that we had someone who was in position to deal with the threat. Lord only knows what the outcome might have been otherwise. We have all kinds of evidence and information that gun control is contributing to problems. Illustrated the point about Mexico, where only 1% of the population owns a firearm legally. They can only possess a 22, and yet we have record murders that are occurring in Mexico. Because this just in, the bad guys tend not to abide by the law. And in this country, we continue to see a race by leftists towards stronger and stronger gun control. Because, by God, if we only control the guns, I mean, all the problems are fixed, right? And so what we end up seeing is that, yes, California, with the strictest gun laws in the country, California actually has a much greater chance 
of leading to you dying via a mass killing with someone unlawfully using a firearm. So what gives there? And in fact, you have more of those mass killings in California than any other state. So we see time and again that gun control actually leads to less safety. So why are we still dealing with these issues on the emotional level? And it's one of the great faults that is brought about in this conversation, embracing the false premise. One of the ways I try to break through to people that are open to information on this particular topic is a law enforcement example. Now, the one thing you can do is try to rationalize with someone who's inherently irrational. So if someone, for example, is afraid of a gun, no matter who possesses it, including someone in law enforcement, you know, for example, if you have someone who thinks that our police should only be able to run around with batons or something, there, there's no point in having the conversation. It's going nowhere. But if you do have someone that's open to information, the way I try to, to break through the emotional argument with some pragmatism is law enforcement. I ask someone, what is it that you think of a police officer with a gun? Does that scare you? Well, well no, because you know they're law enforcement. Well, why is it that when they have a gun, it doesn't scare you? But if I have a gun, for example, it does. Well, well because they're trained. Well, who said I'm not trained? Who said, for example, that uh, you know a, a Jack Wilson is an ad? See, one of the most pervasive forms of bias in news media, again, it's omission. And we have ample evidence, and I'll get to some of it in just a bit, about lives being saved by defensive use of firearms. Once again, it just isn't disseminated. And so that is the bigger part of this conversation and another of the teachable moments from the very... Uh, unfortunate events that played out in New York and Texas over the weekend. Let's go to Kathy, who's been patient in Scranton. Uh, Kathy, welcome to the show. Hi. And and in um, Buckingham, Virginia, they're undergoing a a thing where they want to take away all the guns, the governor, Northam, and that's not going to work because... (laughs) They're all gathering together and fighting it, and and they should, because it is our Second Amendment rights, and they're our rights that were given to us by our Creator, you know. Well, yeah, Kathy, and then this is another teachable moment. It's another illustrative point. You know, a lot of people, if you embrace a false premise, let's say, for example, uh, you know, you you have someone who if they were honest with themselves, would look to abolish the Second Amendment, which is most of the left these days, if you really uh, have them, and, and you, you keep backing down their argument. I'll get to that point. I'll ask someone, if you could do away with the Second Amendment, would you? You can really find uh, very quickly who's telling the truth on that one, because you're often going to be met with a lie, because they know that's a losing argument, but you'll see the level of discomfort or you'll hear the pause in their answer and their, their response, change in inflection, all these things that indicate, yeah, you know what, they really would. And the, the other issue at hand is, even for them, okay, well, what happens if there's an amendment that you care about that uh, we do away with? Well, I mean, that would, you know, that would be bad. Well, what are you, if you are willing to eradicate the Second Amendment, what's to keep you from losing other rights? 
and what protects your ability to defend yourself. Uh, now let's go to Israel in New Jersey. Israel, go. Yes, you, you hit the nail right on the head in the very beginning when you pointed to the educational system. And uh, it, it didn't begin actually only with the Department of Education. It goes back a couple of decades earlier with it the does. United States Supreme Court. Yep. In the case in 1962, Engel versus Vitali, they basically destroyed the educational system. They, there's people that think that education is just about the three R's. It goes way beyond that, as you hey, point out. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely way, right, Israel. Right, and the way you you absolutely right because that's what you pointed out, and the way to fix it actually is was actually pointed out even before the damage was done. A fellow by the Milton Friedman, great yep. economist, world class economist, pointed to education and said, "Why is it top down? Why can't parents decide where to send the kids? Pick out the best schools for their kids that matches their faith, their talents, their, their needs." And that's what, that's what needs to be done to fix this whole mess that we have in this country. It started in 1962. Not only did he take out morality, the, the Supreme Court morality, and they, they pointed to the fact that you can't have religion and faith in a government situation. So how do you have on, uh, in, in God we trust on the dollar bills? How do you take an oath of office when you take the oath of office? Exactly right. Because once you eliminate uh, the the premise, so once you're dealing with other issues, then suddenly any number of other things come into play uh, along the lines of what you mentioned. And if you are just joining us, we're talking about this in the first hour. And uh, ultimately, you did have in the 60s, starting with that Supreme Court ruling, the breaking down of the moral structure in this country uh, with the education establishment. Then you had the Department of Education really do the job. So the Department of Education created in 79. 80 was their first year of operation, and you began to see them systematically ensure that you had God and faith and a system of morality removed from schools. Now we see the first generations of young people that are now adults, in some cases, uh, you know, are older adults. And we continue to see the problems escalate with mental health issues, with violence. And the, the research that I shared with you uh, that illustrates that people who have some sort of faith, a belief in God, are far more likely to be happy, far less likely to engage in violence. They're far more likely to help others. They're far less likely to engage in substance abuse, all very positive elements. And it goes hand in hand uh, with what we have seen change in our society. That's always the thing. If you're looking for capitulation points, what is it that has changed? And if we want answers, that's where we should be looking. Let's go to Judy in Brooklyn. Judy, go. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. I agree with everything you have to say, and I'm listening to the other guy before you, and I'm laughing. I'm going, you know, you've got to get rid of political correctness and bring in some common sense because that's what's needed also. But, you know, Brian, I want to also say, before I go into with the gun situation, you're talking about belief in God, and I believe everything you're saying, but how do you explain the hate speech that comes out of houses of worship like the revival of Farrakhan and his followers that sit there in a house of worship and they're just talking vile stuff and talking about anti-Semitism. They are just talking about the most vilest lies about Jews, like the most ridiculous things they incite. And where, where does it go from freedom of speech to hate speech? And it's a crime and it should be, it should be, it should be really, uh, you know, they should be uh, denounced and something should 
be done about it, Brian. You uh, you remind me of a story, something I haven't thought about in a very long time. So I started my career in radio in Savannah. And uh, so the, the city of Savannah itself, wonderful place, generally wonderful people. However, there happened to be a radio station, that uh, religious radio station, with almost all great people. But occasionally, there would be guests that would be radical in nature that would show up on this radio station. And there was one in particular that I'd caught bits and pizza pieces of previously uh, that really alarmed me. It's kind of my first experience with the Farrakhan type of extremism being expressed. And it was shocking to me that on a station with a lot of really good people and with within uh, you know uh, one studio down from where I was broadcasting, this would occasionally take place. Guy who would come in and and do a show uh, one day a week. And I listened one day uh, during my breaks doing my show, and I heard the guy actually refer to me and say that I'm the devil, and anyone who believed as I do are the devil's advocates. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things. You, you have a thick skin in this line of work. You should. You need to. Uh, and, and if you're going to stick to your guns, you've got to be able to roll with it. But early on in my career, it was one of the first realizations of how things can manifest in such a negative way. You have someone who proclaims to be a person of faith, someone who is reaching out to people that are seeking faith and information. And... They're radicalizing people, or attempting to, and in this case, turn them against me. So this person, who is, at this stage, easily twice my age, probably close to three times my age, was in my uh, early 20s, I made a point to meet him outside the studio when uh, when his show was done, because I wanted to see what his reaction to me would be. And he was nice. He shook my hand, said, hey, how you doing? That kind of thing. And I was so taken aback. I didn't address it with him. Uh, I, I was so taken aback because that, for me, was another teachable moment. Here you had somebody who's willing to go on the air, call me the devil, say that people that believed as I did would listen to me were the devil's advocates, and then would turn around and say, hey, how's it going? What? And that's how the game is played. You know, it's it, it go back to the church and the preacher of choice by one President Obama. How much hate speech was taking place in that church, right? Now, was that necessarily something that was articulated outside of that setting? No, it wasn't. Given the opportunity in interviews. Everybody associated with it sound perfectly reasonable, right? And that's the whole thing. And then if you dare try to enter that world, now you're being racist, now you're being whatever else, and the, the media will paint you as such. It is an instructive point. There is uh, you know, a, a whole other storyline that we can pick up on uh, with, with that one. Let's go to Brent in Richmond, Virginia. Brent, go. Hey, how you doing uh, today? All good. All right, thank you for taking my call. Look, I wanted to talk about gun laws in Virginia. <clears throat> um, 
1991, Virginia's murder rate was 9.27 per 100,000. Governor Wilder instituted a law, one gun a month in 1992. Over the next 20 years when that law was in effect, our murder rate dropped. And, and do the research, look at this. Our murder rate in the Commonwealth dropped by 60%, got down to 3.25 per 100,000. In 2011, 2012, the Virginia GOP repealed one gun a month, and our numbers, our murder rate has been trending high ever since. Actually, Richmond, Newport News, and Norfolk are now back in the top murder rate cities in the Commonwealth. So our governor and the Democrats here in Virginia are trying to get that law back on the books, along with uh, other laws, common sense gun laws. Now, you say that gun law, gun control doesn't work. But it worked here in Virginia. The numbers prove it. It reduced that murder rate by 60%. Also, when you look at the federal firearms uh, ban from 1994 to 2004, uh, the next decade, mass murders went up by 400, 400 to 500%. So how can you explain that if you're saying that gun laws don't work? So we can end up manipulating information however we choose to. When you're taking a look at municipal information specifically, you're getting very granular in detail in a way that isn't necessarily going to correlate to the macro data that we have that illustrates the points that I was making across the country. Rather than getting into the weeds and trying to explain one municipality or one local government from another, because, uh, you know, there are any number of different factors that can come into play. If gun control works the way that you allege that it does, why is it that Mexico has 22s owned by people, 1% of the Mexican adults legally owning that 22, and tens of thousands of people being murdered? Why is it that California has the strictest gun laws in the country, and you are greater than 60% more likely to be killed by unlawful gun use in California than anywhere USA. Two sides of stories, one side of facts. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin'. we're seeing a growing anti-Semitism. It's something that we all need to speak out against, people of all faiths, because, you know, whether it's a synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, whether it's uh, the home of an Orthodox rabbi, we all need to stand up and say it's wrong to attack people based on, on their faith. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise. And as we've been talking about the attacks over the weekend, the attack in New York, the attack in Texas, the eight different attacks that have occurred just in New York, In December alone, anti-Semitic attacks, the rise and escalation of violence against Christians and churches here and across the world, for that matter, the rise in mental health issues, the corresponding rise in gun control, the fact that where we have seen recent gun control measures uh, enacted, we have seen an increase in violence, comes this reminder. Story that uh, I broke out a couple years ago about defensive use of guns. We'll never know how many lives were saved yesterday by Jack Wilson when he, inside of six seconds, took action against the killer. But in 1997, the Clinton Justice Department found that there were an estimated one and a half million defensive 
uses of firearms per year. One and a half million in the United States. More recently, 2012, separate study by Northwestern University in conjunction with Florida State found that number had risen to two and a half million. Two and a half million per year. Those are the untold stories. And still, have we dealt with the problem if we've only dealt with a gun? Talk about the impeachment hoax next. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. She's doing a tremendous disservice to the country. Uh, she's not doing a good job. And some people think that she's uh, she doesn't know what she's doing. A lot of people think that. A lot of people have said it. Well, I'll say this. Nancy Pelosi is a lot of things, but she is not dumb. She is highly manipulative, and she has been highly successful to a point with what she's been trying to achieve this year. Going to walk you through the latest on the impeachment hoax and discuss some of the false premise that went into this entire impeachment process because this never was about a crappy Ukrainian phone call in a whistleblower who wasn't a witness to a crime that was never committed. We realize that, right? Okay, good. But for Nancy Pelosi, it's been about many other things aside from just impeachment of President Trump. And some of the real flaws have begun to emerge themselves, especially over the past couple of weeks since impeachment actually was voted on in the House. I am uh, Brian Mudd, in for the great one, Mark Levin. I host The Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach. Uh, The Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be guest hosting for the great one, Mark Levin. Love being here with you. Broadcasting just a few miles away from where... El Presidente uh, resides, actually his new primary residence, which is Mar-a-Lago, as he has officially left New York. Uh, So at whatever point he is no longer at uh, 1600 Pennsylvania, he will be primarily uh, right here. And we're happy to have him, along with many other New Yorkers and many other people from high-tax states that continue to migrate to our wonderful zero-income-tax state with a wonderful economy, great environment, and... uh, Let's see, right now, what is it? About 74. Uh, So anyway, not that I'm rubbing that in. Now, Nancy Pelosi. Let's talk about some of the objectives. I believe back in October, I discussed a little bit of what Nancy Pelosi had done. Some of the sleight of hand that had been taking place. A lot of questions in the early going of the impeachment discussion. Before we even got to the public hearings, you had Nancy Pelosi in September that... He just publicly said, all right, so now this thing's formal. And there are all kinds of constitutional questions and potential issues with it. Starting with, how is it that she can just come out without a vote and say that uh, this thing is formal? Doesn't that require a vote? Well, yeah, it does. Under the Constitution, it most certainly does. I went digging. I tried to find out if something was different. And through a lot of pain and agony, because reading through House rules is painful And it is bound to bring you agony. Discover that at the start of this Congress, every single Congress, 
you have rules that are voted on for the new Congress. Nancy Pelosi worked in there the ability for all of these committees that had been subpoenaing the information, that had been calling witnesses. They were all granted expanded power to do so at that point. In other words, the vote, or at least the argument, had they've been sued, and this decided in the courts by Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats, what it would have been is, well, we did vote on it. We did it in January. Just nowhere along the way did it say that this is for a formal impeachment inquiry of President Trump. Instead, it was expanded power by all these committees in the House, run by Democrats, to carry out actions as though it was a formal process. And then her just coming out and saying it's formal. Well, now it is. So that's how we got from here to there. Now, fast forward in this process, what's really going on, and one of Nancy Pelosi's first objectives. I don't believe her desire was ever to impeach President Trump. She held off a lot in her ranks for quite quite a while. We know that many people, going back to the day that President Trump was elected, including House Democrats, were talking about impeaching President Trump. Nancy Pelosi wasn't there, wasn't there, wasn't there until she was. So what changed with Nancy? Well, what was happening? The first thing is, if you lose those in your ranks and you're the leader, you're toast, right? Now, one of the interesting dynamics politically in this country over the past decade, it's been what's happened with the political parties, If you take the Republicans, what happened? You had Republicans break off into those that were constitutionalists, those that were tired of the establishment, that included many progressives, those that wanted to get back to fundamentals and the roots of conservatism. And they broke off into what became the Tea Party. And then you had subsequent battles. The first battles waged in special elections in 2009, with Republicans largely in the Tea Party being successful. That carried it through to the wave election for Republicans in 2010. But then in 2012, there's a little bit of a move back towards the establishment, including Mitt Romney being at the top of the ticket for Republicans. And then what happened? Well, we saw things begin to come full circle. We had John Boehner thrown overboard, and we saw things really start to boil over within Republican ranks. The battle between the Tea Party element and the establishment element of the party. And you had Donald Trump emerge and put an end to the whole thing, remaking the Republican Party in his own image. When you take a look at the Democrats, I believe a different version of a similar thing has been playing out, and for a very long time. When you had the Tea Party, you also had something else that, that began to emerge. Remember what it was? What really, It wasn't Bernie Sanders and those that were backing him in 2016. That wasn't the first sign of real socialism beginning to emerge in this country on the left, oh, so overtly. It started with Occupy Wall Street, really started to emerge in a very significant and very public way in 2011. And that was the real beginning of the fight for the Democrat Party, 
Now, because Obama was president and because he won in 2012, it kept everything at bay. But then you open up the 2016 cycle and you see exactly what happened. How socialism became mainstreamed on the left. And who knows if you had you know, fair roles among the Democrats, if Bernie Sanders actually would have emerged. So then you walk forward and we see what happened. We have the squad that was elected last year. You have AOC, who earlier this year doing things like running away from Mr. Call Screener, but also getting in front of about every camera uh, imaginable. And you had the rest of the Tlaib show. And you had the element that would continue to really dominate the conversation. How often did you see Nancy Pelosi relative to the squad? Were they not dominating the conversation in Democrat politics? Nancy Pelosi had lost her caucus. So what was she to do? If she was going to save her speakership, if she wasn't going to be thrown overboard a la Boehner, I better do something. Well, what is it that I can do to regain power, to consolidate power, and to get the squad back off of the cameras? Well, I can go along with impeachment. So the first thing was crisis management. Do impeachment to save your own butt to consolidate your own power, and then figure out what you're, do, what you're going to do once you get there. Now, I believe that's how we got from here to there in the House with impeachment. And I believe that this was about Nancy Pelosi, in that regard, consolidating power. Again, when was the last time you saw AOC and Tlaib and company out there on the cameras dominating the conversation every day? Is there any doubt that Nancy Pelosi, once again, leads House Democrats? Okay, so now what? And that takes us back to the entire false premise of this impeachment process in the first place. One of the fascinating elements that continues to play out as you have so many people that are so comfortable with lying openly because they know that their friends in the godless souls and slenders news media will not call them out on it. Remember how we had to rush through this impeachment? We had to run and and get through this impeachment process because the president of the United States, existential threat to this country. We can't wait until the next election. We can't wait another day, another week. We can't do it. We got to hold him to account. We've got to remove him from office as quickly as possible. How many times was that articulated during the course of the House impeachment process? So you impeach the president of the United States, and then where's Nancy with the articles of impeachment? So now we sit on it and wait? If the president of the United States is an existential threat to this country, why are you not ready? I mean, you should be not only throwing the articles of impeachment to the Senate so they can begin the, the trial, but you should be calling on no recess, no holidays being observed. You should be calling on that process playing out to remove the president immediately, right? Because that was the argument that was used in part in the House. So I'm going to pick up on that point and bring this thing full circle 
with the false premise of the impeachment inquiry process and the rest of the big story and what's going on, which is the massive CYA job that Nancy Pelosi is trying to do now that she's consolidated power once again with her, within her own caucus. Talk about that coming up next. I'm Brian Mutt, and for the great one. Mutt in. The Senate has the sole responsibility for the trial, and we have a responsibility to have a fair trial. We need to hear from those who have the direct information about the president's call with the president of Ukraine, about the the holding up of a presidential meeting, about holding up of aid. Those witnesses need to be heard in the United States Senate. Maryland Democrat Ben Cardin, and uh, I mean, it's just hilarious. We need a trial in the Senate. Well, guess what, Ben? Can't even get a trial in the Senate until Nancy Pelosi turns over the articles. Which is when exactly? No one knows. Will Nancy ever turn over the articles of impeachment? It's a question, right? Now, I laid out what I believe was behind Nancy Pelosi's very specific motivation to go along with impeachment when she did. She had lost control of her party. Lost control of her caucus in the House. She was no longer the power player, the squad, and the hardest left element on her side. They were the ones dominating the conversation, dominating media's attention. And so Nancy, in an effort to consolidate power, goes along with it. Now, here we are with the impeachment. We've been sold the bill of goods that we had to rush through this thing. We It had to happen quickly because... We've got to hold Donald Trump accountable. He's a threat to this country. And so what do we do? We impeach the president, and then everybody goes on recess. And Nancy Pelosi, uh, maybe she gets around. Maybe at some point she gets around to turning over the articles to the Senate so they can actually have that trial. I mean, it's you can't make this stuff up. It's fascinating. But again, Nancy Pelosi is a lot of things, but she's not a dumb woman. Brian Mudd in for Mark Levin and talk about the premise. And going all the way back to February 2nd of 2018, happened to uh, guest host for Mark Levin that evening, talked about what ended up being the premise of the impeachment inquiry. The issue with Donald Trump is what he actually has been doing and what he represents. He is an existential threat to corrupt Washington officials. When he talked about the swamp, when he identified people that were acting in their own interest inside of our government rather than representing the interests of the American people, well, guess what? They set up a plan, right? All laid out starting within, well, you you could say the Steele dossier, but we know it went even further back than that. You take a look at the insurance policy, the plot that was hatched out between Strzok and Page. But then you do take a look at what happened with Christopher Steele in the dossier. Now, the first thing you've got to know about this conspiracy the greatest conspiracy ever carried out in American history. Because, again, you, you take a look at Benedict Arnold as one man. You, you take a look at Nixon, talking about a few people. 
When you're talking about what was carried out here against Donald Trump, you're talking about numerous officials at the highest levels of intelligence, at the Justice Department, and the State Department. That doesn't just happen. Imagine for a moment coming up with a conspiracy to create a fraudulent dossier and to funnel it through to a FISA court for surveillance and to come up with the entire Trump-Russia collusion narrative. Imagine how comfortable you have to be with corrupt Washington officials across numerous government agencies to even be able to have that conversation. Could you imagine? Because all it would take is one person in that process, one person in the chain at the State Department, at the Justice Department, in the intelligence agencies. One person who goes, holy cow, this is really wrong, and you're toast. But they knew. They knew the various different corrupt officials in all of these agencies that they could create and carry out this plot with. And so that is the real premise of the impeachment of President Trump. What he represents to outing, to eliminating the corrupt elements in this government. Because one stuff truly hits the fan. And when John Durham's report comes out, when that impaneled grand jury that is there for criminal indictments, once they end up becoming the forefront conversation, the last thing you're going to be worried about is the impeachment of President Trump. And it's the first thing that these corrupt Democrats, these corrupt government officials in Washington, it's the first thing they're going to be worried about. In fact, they are right now. Talk more about that coming up. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. If the world seems so confusing, Mark will be glad to clear that up for you. Call him now at 877-381-3811. What you're seeing right now is, I think, Pelosi just, just exposing the fact she has no case and trying to have one more bite at the apple. They're even talking about more impeachments next year. How about they focus on lowering drug prices, securing our border, doing an infrastructure package that they could have done in a bipartisan way. They don't want to do any of that because they've become the party of impeachment. Well, and uh, that is Steve Scalise. I'm Brian Mudden for The Great One, Mark Levin. And if you've ever known someone who manages in crisis, maybe they're in a, a crisis over the short run, maybe, unfortunately, their life is a series of them. What happens? When you're in crisis mode, what are you concerned about? You're concerned about today, right? The big picture suddenly isn't near as important because if your butt is on the line today, if your future is on the line today, you manage to dealing with whatever the crisis is in front of you right now that satisfies that little thing, and then you try to figure out the rest once you get there. Right? So, to that end, Nancy Pelosi, managing a crisis. Earlier this year, lost control of her caucus, squad dominating Democrat politics, she looks like she's about to be bannered by her own party uh, because, as I depicted uh, just a bit ago, what you are seeing within the Democrats, different version of a similar thing to what happened with Republicans. 
the battle between the establishment and the Tea Party before Donald Trump came along and put an end to all of it, remade the party. You have the battle between the overt socialist and the semi-socialist these days within the Democrat ranks. And so Nancy, on the verge of being thrown overboard, having lost control of the agenda, the conversation, the media, she calls an impeachment. She pulls in and consolidates power once again. That's managing the crisis that's right in front of you today. But then you got all these other crises because the much bigger issue remains. The reason that you got so many desperate people, aside from the ignorant that just hate the Constitution, hate Americans that voted for President Trump and just whatever, is aside from that faction, you have many that are terrified of what President Trump represents. The man who actually is serious about draining the swamp. So one of the ways that Democrats, through the conspiracy that was laid against him originally, one of the ways they were conspiring against him to try to undermine his presidency by any means possible, something that continues to this day. If you can create an environment that is untenable for most people, are they going to want to be part of it? Well, probably not. So for a moment, if you are going to be invited to be part of the Trump cabinet, you're going to be someone that is highly skilled. You're going to be talented. You're going to be someone who's accomplished, right? In other words, you have a lot that you can lose. So what had we seen? I mean, from the day one, Trump gets going, what happens? Flynn. Right? I mean, and just nonstop it from that point forward. Systematic effort to try to take out anybody who would get close to President Trump. And to also send a message to others that, hey, if you do get involved with this guy, it's going to happen to you too. A lot of the focus is just simply on Trump himself. But obviously, you need a lot of good people around you to carry out a successful presidency. So there are multiple ways in which they were working conspiring against this president, trying to keep him from outing the corruption and the crimes committed against him in this country, but also trying to render him ineffectual as well, because heaven forbid he's successful. And look what he has been. Record economy, record low unemployment for every minority group in this country, record incomes, record retirement accounts. It's all working. And all the lies are exposed, right? So with all of that as the backdrop, they were unsuccessful in the effort. But that is and has been all part of the longer-term strategy by any means necessary. But undeterred, here we are, and the real turning point within this administration was with William Barr when he became Attorney General. And remember, one of the most interesting things was the Jeff Sessions scenario. The man I affectionately referred to as Mr. Magoo, because he had run around the country going, hey, I'm the law enforcement guy. And he liked being attorney general, just not really doing the job. And as Jeff Sessions was coming into that post, remember how terrified Democrats, the left, were? Of Jeff Sessions, remember the backlash against him being nominated to be Attorney General in the first place? 
because there are a lot of people that had a lot to lose, right? We didn't know the extent of the conspiracy against Donald Trump. All the criminal action that had been taken was still undergoing uh, in the government. The illegal surveillance that was literally taking place at that moment in time against Team Trump. But what happened? By the time Jeff Sessions, hey, I'm the law for it. By the time Mr. Magoo was getting ousted as attorney general, didn't you hear the exact opposite from the same people who said, oh, my gosh, you can't make Sessions the attorney general because he recused himself from life? Remember that? That itself was going to be a, a crisis, that he was going to throw Sessions out. So what changed? Well, they saw that they were safe with Sessions. And then you have William Barr. William Barr, who had been Attorney General under George Herbert Walker Bush, who had been confirmed as Attorney General when Democrats controlled the United States Senate. Someone who had never been controversial in a significant way. Anyone that you could really pinpoint anything throughout his highly reputable and distinguished career. That would say that he's an ideologue. And yet, oh my, he's, you cannot get anywhere near this guy. Democrats doing everything they could to try to stop his confirmation, right? Everything they could to smear him and destroy him. And it didn't work. And at that point, I'd mentioned William Barr. A lot of eggs in this basket, but he's critical. He's critical. And I didn't think he was taking the job because he was just bored and wanted to put his feet up on his old desk as attorney general. He knew what he was getting into. And he recognized how important it was to root out corruption to bring justice back to the Justice Department, to root out these deep state actors, to hold people accountable. He saw that Mr. McCoo certainly wasn't doing it. And that's when things began. Now, a lot of folks have been impatient, and there are plenty of reasons why. We have known that there has been criminal corruption stemming from when Donald Trump was running for president that has continued in this government with some officials that are still within the government. And we only know what we know. We still don't know how extensive it might be within some of the departments, how pervasive it might be even downright. But the one thing that we ended up seeing throughout the course of this process with William Barr, one of the first things he ended up doing was investigating, right? Now, if you walk back to when Robert Mueller ended up heading up an investigation that he clearly didn't do anything with, just allowed the 18 or 19 angry Democrats, as Donald Trump would refer to them as, to, to run the show. How long did it take for that entire process to play out, for what they ended up doing, which was illustrating that there was no Russian collusion? It was nearly two years, right? It takes a lot of time to do this investigative work when you've got so many people and so much corruption and so much on the line. So here William Barr has been attorney general for under a year. And it's easy to be impatient. But you can see that with the Horowitz report out, which despite his characterizations does not refute any, anything uh, that hints at the corruption from the Steele dossier, from the actors in the Justice Department, the State Department, in the intelligence agencies, that he did nothing to refute any of what we have come to know. That Devin Nunes ended up laying out even going back to February of 2018. 
What we are seeing with John Durham getting ready with this impendable grand jury, waiting for criminal indictments, that's the real story. And that's the real premise of this impeachment process. There are a lot of people that have a lot to lose. Nancy Pelosi has been managing to the next crisis. And it's easy to feel at times like, especially if you believe in the Constitution, if you're a supporter of President Trump, you're losing. And that typically happens because you will subject yourself to the godless souls and slanderous mainstream news media. But you're not, and this country's not. President Trump, Attorney General William Barr, they're getting the job done. Accountability is coming. John Durham is ready. And that will be the real story of 2020. I want to talk about October surprises. I don't know when exactly it is that Durham is going to begin the indictments. But that is the political story of all stories. The greatest conspiracy being revealed in the history of the United States of America. Everything we've been talking about for a couple of years coming to fruition. And that is a crisis that Nancy Pelosi cannot manage. So when you're in crisis mode, just do what you can to the next. Now, on back of all this, one message to you. I was having this conversation just a bit ago with uh, Mr. Call Screener. One of the things that you're seeing President Trump do in his campaign, expanding the map, working in ways and in states that he didn't win the last time and that people said he couldn't win previously. Remember, what are you doing in Michigan? He had no chance of winning Michigan, right? No Republicans won Michigan since 88. Uh Uh-huh, Till Trump. Ditto Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Now, one of the, uh, I had a conversation about gun control in California earlier in the show. And uh, one of the notes received from a listener, just saw it uh, quickly, was California has been screwed up from day one. No, they haven't. (laughs) California, amazing state. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the beauty and the resources and, and, you know, those things. I'm talking about the people and politically. I mean, California is the state that produced Ronald Reagan, right? That is a state that was reliably conservative through the 80s. But, yeah, things got away. And, yes, it's easy to throw up your hands and to give up. But that's how you lose. And in many cases, you take a look at the House and how Democrats were able to wrest control. A lot of that happened with seats that took place in California. You're in California. Do not throw up your hands. 2020 is going to be a historic year for a number of reasons. And you're going to see backlash, I feel, likes of which we have not seen in our lifetimes. I think there is more opportunity right now than there has been in districts that Republicans haven't won in Lord knows how long. And I think it's more important than ever that you get engaged, whether it's local elections. If you think you can't win, but you're inclined to run, you're a constitutional, do it. Do it. Local elections, congressional, whatever it is, get involved. And do it today. No need to wait because you're going to have a tailwind. Times are going to change. Next year, it all begin to make sense. And I do believe in the Attorney General. I do believe in President Trump. And ultimately, I do believe in the Constitution of this country. 
I'm a realist, and I err on the side of optimism. But in this particular case, I don't think this is optimism. I think this is based in reality. And that day of reckoning happens to coincide with our 2020 election cycle. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mark Levin. Leaders around the world understand that President Trump and his Secretary of State are focused on the missions that we've set out. Uh, that they see it, they see the noise here in Washington, D.C. Uh, from time to time, they'll comment and, and shake their heads. Um, but for the most part, I think they recognize we have a mission. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on impeachment. And I was just talking about some of those themes that part of the effort uh, has been to undermine the Trump presidency so that he's not effective as president. And he, despite all efforts to try to undermine the presidency, to keep good and talented people away from him. He's been able to thrive and succeed in the face of it. And uh, as Pompeo indicated, some of these, you know, foreign leaders, they sit there and they shake their heads. And regardless, you know, even if you're a hardcore leftist there, you've got to know that when president Trump says that these, you know, these leaders, they, they, they think we're crazy. Think people are crazy here. What are they doing? You know, there's truth to that, right? <laughs> I mean, he's actually hearing that from some of these foreign leaders. Like the, these people are trying to take you out. It's crazy. And many of them, by the way, many countries kind of identify it because, you know, they, many parts of this world, when you have people that are corrupt, they're trying to undermine leaders. So uh, anyway, all ineffective. And one of the single most important things that's taking place, something that often gains the least amount of attention. And as we're wrapping up 2019, talk about the record judicial appointments under this administration and throughout the course of this year. The greatest legacy of President Trump, not likely to be the record economic growth and the record opportunity. It's incredibly important. It's not likely to be a de-escalation of international conflict and fewer troop deployments, though that's also critically important. It is likely to be the reshaping of the federal courts in this country. And as we end 2019, we've done so with 187 federal judges that had been nominated by President Trump, confirmed by the United States Senate. That includes 22% of the Supreme Court justices, 25% of U.S. Circuit Court judges. And that's happened in under three years. And that leads me to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. His greatest legacy, not likely to be the acquittal of President Trump in an impeachment trial, or the failure to replace the Affordable Care Act, or the passage of the Trump tax policy that's led to the record economy. It's being President Trump's wingman on reshaping the federal courts. We've already started to see the change that's Reflected in decisions. Just a year ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's where Democrats always win. That was their go-to to try to stop down Trump policy. Most recently, they've rolled in favor of the Trump administration. So, aside from Supreme Court nominees, few federal judges gain attention in the news media. When they're nominated, when they're confirmed. But it is the greatest legacy that is being laid One of the greatest accomplishments of this administration by President Trump 
and Majority Leader McConnell. And then, about the impeachment stuff. We'll deal with that. Brian Mudd, always an honor and a pleasure being in for the great one, Mark Levin. Have a great night. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.